This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. Hi, this is John Yu, law professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and you're listening to the Dr. Sky Experience on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the exciting program that you tell us you like so much. The Dr. Sky Experience, with great information from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, and always about American exceptionalism, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and our sacred Second Amendment rights. This, you're listening to Talk Radio 77 WABC, as we call it, the crown jewel of radio, with the Dr. Sky Experience. As WABC is broadcasting out of New York City, around the nation, around the world, and I'm sure out to the cosmos. Today, an exciting guest from a series of books that Regnery Publishing has put out. And I believe this would be the 31st book in a series called A Politically Incorrect Guide, this one entitled The Supreme Court. And it's co-authored by two legal experts. One is our special guest today, John Yu, and the other co-author is Robert J. Delahunty. A little brief background on our special guest, John Yu. He's the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California in Berkeley and a fellow of the American Enterprise Institute and the Hoover Institution. He has served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General and General Counsel for the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. He holds an A.B. from Harvard University and a J.D. from Yale Law School. He was a clerk for, the, for Justice Clarence Thomas. He resides outside of San Francisco, California. But before we do that, a little background on this particular book, Controversial Supreme Court Decisions About Affirmative Action, Big Tech, Social Media, and the First Amendment are decided this summer. Students for Fair Admissions Incorporated versus President and Fellows of Harvard College will determine if institutions of higher education can or cannot use a race as a factor in admissions. Colorado was also trying to force yet another wedding vendor to create art in violation of her religious convictions in 303 Creative LLC versus Elena's. Google and Twitter just received rulings about their policies in Gonzalez versus Google LLC and Twitter Incorporated versus Tamnet. And with that, we'd like to welcome John Yu as a co-author of this particular series book, The Supreme Court. Mr. Yu, thank you. It's an honor to have you here today. Oh, thanks for having me. I hope you don't hold any of those qualifications against me, particularly that I, I went to don't. Harvard College, which is under, <laughs> you know, which is being sued at the Supreme Court right now. We're all eagerly waiting the decision, which I think is going to come out Thursday about affirmative action. Absolutely. And the time we have with this, sir, I mean, so many of the authors, we're so grateful to have these particular authors like yourself, a author with this particular book on the Supreme Court. But talk us a little, talk with us, that is, a little bit about your motivation to write about this. I mean, you're in that legal expertise area, but I'm always fascinated by the Supreme Court, and I think it's a good education to open up people's minds 
on one organization that maybe the average person doesn't have a lot of history on. So give us your reasons for uh, writing such an interesting book. Well, Dr. Sky, I think people, to the extent they're seeing things about the Supreme Court right now, they see two things. They see one, as you were mentioning, the Supreme Court's about to decide all these important issues from can race be used in college admissions to can uh, religious wedding planners refuse to do weddings for uh, gay, uh, uh, I guess, gay, yeah, gay engaged couples and on and on religion the scope of power of the federal government, the administrative state, and so on. wanted to explain to people why the decisions of the Supreme Court aren't politics, aren't Republicans win or Democrats win, but that there's a deeper uh, meaning to Supreme Court decisions that goes beyond day-to-day politics. And then the second thing I think people see about the Supreme Court these days is what Mm -hmm. I argue in the book is an unprecedented attack on the institutional independence of our judges right now. You've seen proposals to pack the court, by which I mean adding new members to the court. You've seen doubts and questions raised about the financial ethics of the justices. You've seen threats. We've had an assassination attempt on a justice. Yes, we have. Yeah, you saw the leak for the first time in our history of a Supreme Court opinion while it was still in draft. And I argue that these efforts to undermine the independence of the court could well hurt all of us in our liberties and freedoms. Absolutely, Mr. Yu. And also going further down the line, the previous Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, as you probably know, and maybe many of our listeners do not, is really trying to petition for term limits to Supreme Court justices, something that I've never heard before, or if I have heard it, I certainly didn't understand the logic on this. Talk about this institution, because it's so powerful in this nation. And obviously, if other political parties wanted to pack the court, was that also not thought over done during the administration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, if I'm correct? Was that something he did or did try to do? I know there's a lot in those questions that I just asked you. you know, the, Dr. Scott, you're exactly right. Franklin Roosevelt threatened to pack the court. His administration introduced legislation to increase the size of the court from nine justices to 15. He wanted to add six more, six new ones. And he did it because he didn't like the way the Supreme Court was slowing down his New Deal, which the New Deal, I think, in the end, overrode a lot of the individual freedoms that we had come to expect as Americans and led to a vastly more powerful federal government. Uh, the other time you've seen it proposed, I think, sadly, is in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education, when the Supreme Court said racial segregation was unconstitutional. And I find remarkable today that a lot of uh, extreme progressives are proposing to do things to the Supreme Court that segregationists proposed to do to the Supreme Court after the court announced this colorblind principle, which I think was faithful. Uh, to the original meaning of the Constitution. Well, not every day, sir, that we get someone who's that close to this particular organization. Describe the relationship as a law clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas. I know recently there's been a regnary book on his life, and it was done from a different perspective than the normal grinding of political identities and differences of opinions. It was more about his life. And recently we had James Rosen, 
the uh, White House correspondent for Newsmax on discussing a new book about Justice Scalia. But describe to us, not every day do we get to talk with someone who has the experience. First of all, what's it like to clerk? And then talk a little bit about Justice Clarence Thomas. I think people need to know that. The the whole clerking thing is a remarkable institution uh, of the Supreme Court. Uh, You basically, the justices take uh, roughly about 35 to 36 of who they consider the very top law students in the country that year. And you go to the court and you serve as an assistant to the justices Mm -hmm. for just one year right at the beginning of your legal career. And then, the, and then unfortunately, you get kicked out after the year. I wouldn't stay. I'd like to stay a lot longer. But they say, no, you're out of here. One year, we've had, uh, one year is all we can take of you. Interesting. <laughs> so, That's amazing. It, 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 it's, I don't think there's anything like it in the country else. It's like as if you know, the Surgeon General took four students right out of medical school and made them his top <laughs> assistants for a year. Amazing. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to be operated on by any of those. <laughs> Certainly not, anyway, sir. <laughs> so anyway, the Supreme Court clerks, we sit there. There's four per justice. And you mm-hmm. sit there and you um, do research for the justices. You help them figure out how to think about cases. You help them draft the opinions. So uh, that's the same for all the justices. I think Justice Thomas is a unique Justice and was a wonderful man to clerk for, you know, basically because the judges are there, you know, in that, you know, temple like building in Washington, they don't really yeah. talk to a lot of outsiders. They don't really see a lot of people. They're really in their chambers, thinking, reading, doing research. You spend a lot of time uh, alone with the justices and they will, Justice Thomas in particular, I always thought, I would say he's a oral learner is how I think of him. He mm-hmm. likes to sit yeah. there with the clerks and argue through all the cases. He doesn't like to read memos. There are some justices just like to read typewritten memos. Justice Thomas would sit there with the four of us and every single case the court would decide that year, he would argue, we would argue with each other. Sometimes he'd play the umpire. Sometimes he'd like to get into the ball game himself and argue about how to decide the cases. And that's a, a wonderful, extraordinary experience, but it also means these justices are constantly challenged they're intellectually vibrant. They're not just coasting on memos, reading talking points like a lot of people in Washington, D.C. are. They really, of all the people, and I also worked in the Justice Department, and I've also worked in the Congress and the Senate, and I would say that justices are the ones in Washington who do most of their own work. Yes. Well, John, you have such an amazing experience at all levels of the branches of government. We're privileged and honored to have you. Just to remind everybody, you're listening to the Dr. Sky Experience here exclusively on Talk Radio 77 WABC. We like to call it the crown jewel of radio, a radio station that's been around in existence for well over 100 years. And our producer for the show for the Dr. Sky Experience is none other than Dr. D. Richard Dugan. He and I have worked together, John, for at least the last 25 years and gathering the best guests that possible, that are possible. But that experience with you in the Supreme Court is fascinating. But I wanted to move on. It's a little more of like having a little university day here with John Yu. And I think something that we need to really understand is, can you explain to us in the basic terms, and I know you can, of course, with your experience, the difference between originalist and textualist. And I think that's interesting in how these particular Supreme Court justices would look at the interpretation of the Constitution, and then beyond to reach uh, their own decisions. Tell us more. Yes, that's a great question. In fact, that's the central question of our book is, how do you interpret vague phrases in the Constitution? 
sometimes the Constitution is very specific, like how old right. someone has to be to run for president. But when it mm-hmm. comes to our individual liberties, sometimes the Constitution uses sort of vague, open-ended language. The most important one these days is the state cannot take your life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So what does that phrase due process mean? So I think someone who's a textualist or someone who might believe in a living constitution would say due process should mean what we think it means today. Mm-hmm. And it's that clause, for example, that the Supreme Court has read to guarantee gay marriage, for example, or strike yeah. down sodomy laws and things which are uh, you know, not clear to me anyway, that that falls within due process, regardless of whether you think those decisions are correct, or most famously, the right to abortion. An originalist Mm -hmm. would say, no, what we have to do is look at what did the phrase due process mean to the people who wrote and ratified the Constitution at that time? What did due process mean to the framers in 1788 of our Constitution, or to the people who wrote the Reconstruction Amendments, where they repeated the phrase again and applied it to the states? right after the Civil War. And I would say right now, for the first time since perhaps before FDR, we have a majority on the court who believes that originalism is the proper way to interpret the Constitution. Very good. Well said, because then there's also one, another partition of this, if we were going to go down that road, see if I'm correct on this, strict instructionist would be what? More of a person who is the literalist of every word that the Constitution states, and what, there is no deviation from that or should not be. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I I heard in your introduction to the segment that you uh, are uh, someone interested in the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. This is a great example. This is a great example of the differences of these schools because, right, a textualist person, someone who thinks we should interpret the Constitution based on today's meaning would say, why can't we have more gun control? Well, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a right to bear arms, maybe, but the government can basically you know, eliminate that right in certain situations, like places, times, and so on. Uh, strict constructionist, and that phrase really comes from Thomas Jefferson. He would okay. say, read every phrase in the Constitution narrowly, as narrowly as possible. Let the people decide. You know, they, so someone like Jefferson didn't like judges and courts deciding anything. So he said, decide everything as narrowly as you can. Now, an originalist, and I count Justice Thomas in this camp. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would say on the court now, Justice Thomas is the leader of this camp. And he wrote last year the major Supreme Court decision, which expanded Second Amendment rights in your state, right? The case is called Bruin versus New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. Absolutely. Thomas, yeah, but I think one of the, you know, the the Supreme Court has rarely decided any Second Amendment cases. And Justice Thomas said, when we look on the right to bear arms and what's reasonable government regulation of those arms, we should look at the kinds of regulations that existed at the time of the founding. But we shouldn't allow our modern sensibilities to override the original meaning of the Constitution. Otherwise, what was the point of writing it down if we're just going to let people today vote on what they want to do? Well, John, that's a great explanation. And I just wanted to add for the listening audience here, for years I've been so much involved with our other radio shows. I mentioned at the beginning of the program, A Call to Rights. I believe very strongly in our Second Amendment. 
I'm a very much active and have been for over 20 years, at least from teaching this on gun rights and all the things about safety and such. But the reason I mentioned that, we were very involved in the Heller case, and we actually supported uh, Mr. Heller here in Phoenix at a big NRA convention. That was a momentous event. But describe the Heller case, because many people who are fans of firearms, they simply may not understand in the, in the best way you can explain it, which I'm sure will be fantastic. What does that Heller decision really mean for Second Amendment rights? The, the Heller decision, and this case I mentioned, Bruins by Justice Thomas last year, we have mm-hmm. a whole chapter about this in the book, about the Second Amendment yes. case, um, really built on Heller, which is now almost about 15, 20 years ago. Heller decided for the first time, can you believe this, until the 21st century, the Supreme Court had never decided that the Second Amendment protected your right and my individual right to have a firearm. Uh, In fact, that's why we had a world where some cities and states just completely banned weapons. Yes. So the first in Heller, the court said for the first time, this opinion by Justice Scalia, uh, another another great originalist, he said, Mm -hmm. uh, right, the right to bear arms isn't just, you know, like, uh, like a right that you get from the government. The right that government lets you have a gun because it wants you to serve in a militia. That was the argument of the uh, Obama administration. Instead, what the court said, Justice Scalia said, back, if you go back and look at 1780, at the time of our founding, guns were owned and widespread, and it was seen as part of your natural right to defend yourself. So the right to self-defense requires you to be able to have a gun, and that's why yes. you see it in the Second Amendment. And it's a brilliant decision, I, I thought. And really, I agree. I, what's remarkable mm-hmm. is it took two centuries for the Supreme Court Amazing. to essentially come to its wits about that important right. Got a quick question. Why, in your opinion, has the Supreme Court kind of veered away from Second Amendment issues? I mean, you know this better than anybody that I could probably talk to. What would be the answer to that? Uh, we seem to be more responsible these issues, but why for so long has it kind of uh, ignored that? This is a great question, Dr. Sky, and really try to get at this in this book, is that uh, the Supreme Court is part of our society, it's part of our government, and it can be prone to the same kind of conventional wisdoms that sweep everybody else. And we say, right, so gun control is seen by, you know, the elites as the sensible policy. Who could be against gun control? Um, yes. Right now, you're seeing all kinds of things, too, like who could be against limits on speech, <laughs> right? things like this. Sure. And so exactly. you know, one thing we try to point out is the Supreme Court, we hope the justices understand their role, is not to go along with the conventional wisdom. In fact, when they do things that are the most important under the Constitution, it's when they're telling the majority to stop, slow down, mm-hmm. or even say, you can't do that. And we think Actually, the saddest parts of the Supreme Court's history have been when it's gone along. For example, when it went along with slavery, with Dred Scott right before the Civil War and stopped Congress from trying to stop the spread of slavery, or Plessy versus Ferguson when the Supreme Court said, okay, yes, segregation in the South is okay right after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead, what we say, the Supreme Court has to read the Constitution, understand its original understanding for example, with firearms, and stand up for individual liberties and individual rights when they're protected by the Constitution. We don't need a Supreme Court. We don't even really need a Constitution. If 
we're just going to go right. along with what 50% 0.1% of the American people vote on. Well, we shouldn't we wouldn't have any rules in the world if we all lived by the golden rule, but then again, that's asking too much. But in the time we have with you, John Yu, thank you again for joining us here. And I'd love to do another expanded interview with you in the future on maybe oh, a whole time. different subject. No, with your involvement. Time. No, with your involvement with Guantanamo and Al Qaeda and executive sure. power, the wiretapping, all that during the Bush George W. Bush administration. You have a lot to say, and I followed you and do admire the many of the decisions that you've reached as far as legal opinions. But just a couple of more questions before the clock runs out, and I wish the clock would be frozen. You have a question here in the interview questions, but I like to have my own. But this one I found most interesting. What's the most surprising Supreme Court justice and the most disappointing? And that you do go into some detail in the book, who, who just to give us a little flavor of what that might be so we can read the book and, and learn much more. Oh, thanks so much. Well, one one example we've talked about, Justice Thomas, I find the greatest difference between the public image of him. You know, he's under attack right now for being friends with a you know billionaire, basically, and there are right. all kinds of accusations against him. But I think they're mm-hmm. all you know just ridiculous. I mean, there's to me, having seen him decide cases in person, he would never take into account when deciding an issue who the parties are, in fact, or who pays for the litigation or anything like that. You take the difference between that, his public image, and then how hard he has worked over his thirty some years on the court now to restore originalism. He is the leading originalist on the court. Amazing. And they also ignore, he's very aware, even though he's against affirmative action, he's very aware of what it means to be black in America. And he thinks just right. regardless of whether it's a good policy or not, the constitution does not allow the government to treat us on the basis of race. In terms of disappointments, I hate to say it, I was very much disappointed in people like Justice Kennedy or Justice mm-hmm. O'Connor, who were very popular justices, well-known in the media. But when you read their opinions, because they weren't originalists, they had yes. no method on how to interpret the Constitution. It led them to you know, lean right sometimes, lean left sometimes, move all around the map, but without any kind of certainty and predictability in the law. Well, John, this interview, uh, people out there listening to the Dr. Sky Experience will timestamp this as June 27th. 2023. And the reason I mentioned that, it's quite obvious that this is reality now, but the Supreme Court uh, session is soon to end. And I'd like to have you just give us, you know, time would not permit every particular Supreme Court case. But I think the one that's most prolific in your mind and many people is the Harvard case about affirmative action. Mm -hmm. If it has been decided already, please forgive me for not being an updated person on that. But Describe what's at stake there and, and basically what the Supreme Court uh, then closes shop at the end of this month, just a few days from now. Yes. So the Supreme Court has one day left this year to decide issue opinions, and that's this Thursday. So in two days. And the major case, as you pointed out, Dr. Sky sitting out there is the case about Harvard and its use of race when it makes admissions decisions. Now, as a university professor, I have to say this racial diversity uh, issue is not just about college admissions. It infuses so many of our institutions, not just colleges, universities, but the media, Hollywood, our major corporations, our politics. And so Mm -hmm. I think the Supreme Court made an error long ago in the 70s when it said, yes, you can use race when you admit students. I think 
in two days, it's going to correct that mistake and finally come back to the principle uh, that I think is in our Constitution, has long been in our Constitution, our Declaration of Independence, and some of our great dissenting justices who said, our Constitution knows no class of citizens, it knows no color or race of its citizens, it treats us all the same. Wow. Powerful stuff. And is there any Supreme Court decision from this session that actually surprised you in what you have from your legal experience, uh, totally surprised you and say, hey, I didn't know that where that one came from. Any one of those decisions <laughs> that's been rendered so far, in which case would it be? Yes, well, there have been a few. Today, the court decided a case called Moore versus Harper, which was about whether state legislatures had the right to draw districts. For congressional right in North Carolina, right? North yes, Carolina. out of North Carolina, and whether right. state courts there could overrule them. There was another decision in Alabama two weeks ago about whether uh, race had to be taken into account when you draw congressional districts. The interesting thing from the larger perspective is that the court had, for the last 50 years, tried to dive in and regulate politics. Not obvious to me that the Constitution wants the courts getting involved with elections, with democracy, how politics works. Uh, they made mistakes, I think, by trying to, for example, regulate campaign donations and regulate speech, although they've been pulling out of that too. And so you could read these cases, although conservatives are not happy about either of them. You could read those cases as an example of the court continuous effort to get out of politics, to end this experiment where they thought, oh, we have an idea of what good elections are like. We have an idea of what good political systems are like, and we're going to impose it on the American people. And I think now the court's realizing it's a dirty, messy business. Let <laughs> our voters control elections. Let our representatives control elections. There's no way courts and the law can really control elections. Well, John, you, it's a pleasure, a pleasure and an honor to have you here on the Dr. Sky Experience. I look forward to doing this again with you in another format at another time, if that's okay by you. And I wanted to remind everybody, your book opens up with a quote from Alexander Hamilton. And he predicted, as you know so well, quote, will always be, that is, the Supreme Court, be the least dangerous branch of government. But wow, end quote, Hamilton got it wrong, as you say, <laughs> with all the changes that are happening in the modern world today. It's interesting to talk about this. And listen, I think the book itself, as we talk about, go ahead, ladies and gentlemen, and get this book. A politically incorrect guide to the Supreme Court. I think, John, you that this is number thirty-one in a great series on so many topics, from science to the Bible to hunting, gun rights, the Constitution, communism, and so much. Thank you, sir, John. You, a special guest here on the Doctor Sky Experience here on Talk Radio seventy-seven WABC, what we call WABC, the Clown Jewel of Radio. John, if you'd be kind enough to stand by as we go to the hard break at the bottom of the hour, we wish you well in your career. And certainly, again, would like to talk with you more about other subject matters that you know so well as we talk about American exceptionalism on this edition of the Dr. Sky Experience. Thank you, John You. Thanks. Great to be with you. This is 
Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.